If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3. The text that we are fixing to study is one of the most important sections in all of the Bible. And it's absolutely critical that you understand the material that we are fixing to cover. Because the subject matter has to do with the issue of regeneration. That word synonymous with the new birth, synonymous with born again. And lots of people are confused about this first great miracle that takes place in the salvation of a sinner. The majority report in evangelicalism today believes that first you exercise faith and then as a result of your exercise of faith, you are then born again, regenerated, born from above. But I'm going to show you from Scripture today that that is the complete opposite of the truth. I'm going to prove it from the text. Regeneration is not a work of man. Regeneration is a work of God that precedes saving faith. No person will ever exercise saving faith without first being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. There is a great theological divide that exists between these two views. And as always, my concern is to get down to the bottom of the truth of the matter by studying the words of the Word of God and letting the meaning of the words in the text govern my theological position that I teach to you. So let's begin by reading the first 10 verses of this third chapter. We won't cover all 10 verses. If you're not convinced of my position on this, you need to come to all the sermons on this to hear the whole thing before you make a judgment and get comfortable because we're going to be here in these 10 verses for a while because this is too important a subject. So let's read verses 1 to 10 in John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to them, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I went a little further. I couldn't help it. I got carried away. We're stopping at we're, we're stopping at ten. Now, in the ten verses, notice Jesus speaks five times of being born again. That phrase "born again" is a very familiar part of evangelical lingo. Many people, lost and saved, make a distinction between the born-again Christian, and the more traditional Christians. This phrase has become a part of kind of a Christian pop culture, if you will. It's been turned into an adjective phrase. And plenty of evangelists tell people how to become born again, the steps that they need to take and the prayer that they need to pray in order to achieve it. But the truth is, the idea, the very idea of being born again is something completely foreign to anything that a sinner could do. Listen to me. That is why Jesus chose this analogy. The whole point of the analogy of being born again demonstrates that Jesus is saying something has to happen to you initiated by God that you can't do, that you can't contribute to in any way. Well, think of physical birth. What contribution did any of us make to our physical birth? None. We were once non-existent. And we made no contribution whatsoever to being born into this world physically. And folks, that is exactly why Jesus chooses this analogy. Because we also, in the same way, make no contribution to our spiritual birth. None. Jesus could have used other analogies if if he had intended to communicate that we do make a contribution, and many of today's preachers and evangelists teach that we can if you just pray the right prayer and you can make it happen. But Jesus chose to make crystal clear that the new birth 
is something that happens to us, not by us. We receive the birth from someone else in the same way that we receive our physical birth from someone else. Birth happens to us, not by us. The whole point of spiritual birth or or regeneration is that it is holy and completely a work of God. And God alone gets every ounce of the glory for every person who is regenerated by His Spirit in this world. Now, I cannot overstate how important it is that all Christians understand this correctly. This is crucial truth. And we're going to engage ourselves with the most amazing conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that I pray will lead all of us into a deeper understanding of this incredible revelation in the gospel of John. Now, this is a familiar story. I'm sure all of us are acquainted with it. Most of us know Nicodemus. We know about him. We know his story. But the theology that is coming to us in this passage is what I really want us to focus on. And we're going to break this passage down very simply into three sections. Number one, the sinner's worry. Number two, the Savior's way. And number three, the Spirit's work. So that's the direction we're going to head here. One of the primary realities that this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus makes very clear for us is that salvation is not for those who become more religious. It's not for those who try harder to do good. It's not for those who live morally improved lives. It's not for those who have, in their own power and strength, decided to straighten up and turn away from certain vices in their past. Salvation is not for those people. The kingdom of God opens its door to only people who abandon all self-effort to earn their way by their works into the kingdom and on the other hand, receive from God a new birth. When you come to Christ on His terms of Bible repentance and saving faith, you cease any idea of earning a place in the kingdom with your works. You delete your entire life, really, up until that point. You hit the reset button and you start all over again. That's what happened to me in 1997, arrested six times in three parishes, former IV drug user, okay? Now, we really need to back up a little bit at what we looked at last time we were here to get the context straight. So back up, just remember, in John 2 and verse 23. If you're visiting with us, we have Bibles in front of the pews and we have the words also up on the screen. 
John 2, 23, remember this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs he was doing. And remember, hey, man, that is a great starting point, right? You, you have to believe in Jesus' name. You have to believe in his identity. You have to believe in who he claimed to be. But then notice verse 24 is a staggering verse. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. So Jesus, as we said last time, he didn't believe in their believing. He didn't have faith in their faith. Why? Because they had not believed genuinely, authentically. They believed with intellectual faith. Remember, what the Bible say? The devils believe and they tremble. Now, how did Jesus know this? We'll go back to the end of verse 24 and into verse 25. For he knew all men, Jesus, And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus knew what was on the inside of all these folks who were professing outwardly to believe. And as we said, that's omniscience. That means Jesus is God. As a side note, listen to me. Just because you profess saving faith with your lips does not necessarily mean that you possess actual saving faith in your heart. And that's what Jesus is getting to in these two verses. Now, one of the people who was impressed by Jesus' miracles and was Believing in this way at this point in Jesus is Nicodemus. He's the only one we know about out of that group that day because he has a story that's included in the text right here because we're going to the very next set of verses. And actually, the story of Nicodemus is the illustration of the verses we just read in verses 23 and 24. He's one of the many who believe, but not yet savingly. He will, but we get to that later. Now, Jesus knows this because Jesus knows his heart, just like he knows all of our hearts. And we're fixing to see that. So let's start with Nicodemus and our first point. Our first point is the sinner's worry. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, let me give you a little background. This is a formidable man. In the religious system of Israel, he is right at the top. In fact, he might have even stood out head and shoulders above all the rest because down there in verse 10, 
Remember what Jesus said. Are you the teacher of Israel? So understand, this man, Nicodemus, had reached the absolute pinnacle of Jewish religion because he is described by Jesus as the teacher of Israel. And he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jewish people. Not all of the Pharisees were elevated to membership in the Sanhedrin. Those who served in the Sanhedrin were kind of like U.S. senators in our day, in many ways, okay? (laughs) Nicodemus was one of these guys, all right? And even though he is as religious a man as he could possibly be in those days, he's worried. He's anxious. He's fearful. He's doubtful. He is lacking in assurance. Why? Because he's come to understand he's a part of a defective religious system of apostate Judaism, which had long ago gotten to this place. He's a hypocrite. He really doesn't know God. His heart hasn't been changed. Guess what? He knows it. He is full of doubt. He is full of dread. And what does he fear? He fears the reality that eternity is coming. He's an older man at this point. He knows that for sure. He's afraid that he is not headed for heaven when he dies. And that is the sinner's worry. And when you have reached the pinnacle of your religion, and it does not deliver the confidence that you are going to heaven, Let me tell you something. You are a worried individual. An irreligious, openly immoral man, they may have some fear of judgment, but let me assure you, not nearly at the level of fear that an elevated religious hypocrite has because at this point he's done everything he knows to do, religiously speaking. And when the fear and the dread hits him that he really doesn't know God, he's got nowhere to go because he's reached the peak. That's Nicodemus at this moment. The Pharisees, there were some 6,000 of them at this time, according to Josephus, were the most devout most conscientious keepers of the law, including all the other laws that they made up and they had added. Paul gave his testimony of how he dotted every I and crossed every T religiously when he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. There are records, for example, that tell us that a Pharisee 
could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath because he might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. And that would be a violation of no work on the Sabbath. That's the truth. Now I'd be in trouble at that point. Listen to this. They couldn't gargle vinegar if they had a sore throat, which was something they did back in those days for a sore throat. The gargling of the vinegar with the sore throat would have been a violation of the Sabbath. Now, that's not in God's law. That's part of the stuff that they made up and tacked on to God's law. That's why Judaism had become apostate. There's many examples like that I could stand up here and give you that demonstrate how ridiculous Ridiculous. These, these formulas for virtue had become. The best description is given in the New Testament of the Pharisees. I wish I could read you the whole thing, but I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I'm just going to read you parts of this. Jesus, of course, gives it. Matthew 23. Let, let's look at verses two to seven. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men for they broaden their phylacteries. Those were those stupid little square boxes that they strapped on their heads and had the law rolled up in there. And they lengthen the tassels of their garments because the tassel length was a big deal too. They love the place of honor at banquets and chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. This is Jesus saying this about the Pharisees. And then down in verse 13, he starts to unload. Okay? Verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. In other words, you stop people from coming into the kingdom. You're not in the kingdom. And you can't help anybody else get into the kingdom with what you're teaching. And that's exactly what Nicodemus was. And in his heart, this man knew that he was not in the kingdom. And after verse 13 in Matthew 23, you can go read it for yourself. Jesus goes through this long section of just going off on the Pharisees. He never went off on the regular people. He went off on the religious people all in the New Testament, all the way to verse 36. But let's just get a taste of it in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Anybody said Jesus don't believe in hell, hadn't read the Bible. Jesus goes on with the woes. He sums up in verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Jesus was something else. 
Forget hippie Jesus. Hippie Jesus on TV today did not exist, folks. Now, Pharisees include Nicodemus. And I'm here to tell you, he's at the top of the pile. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. Again, 6,000 Pharisees. There were only 70 members in the Sanhedrin. You had to be chosen to be in the Sanhedrin. They were the elite. They were the richest people in Jerusalem. In some cases, the finest scholars. In Nicodemus's case, the top teacher, the top scholar. This man is at the very apex of religion. And it was very, very rare for a Pharisee to come to Jesus. There's, there's only one in all four Gospels, and it's him. The only other Pharisee we know about was pursued by Jesus, and that's the Apostle Paul. And you see, Nicodemus fears judgment because he does Believe in and understand heaven and hell and divine sovereignty and human responsibility. He does understand all of that. He's got more than enough in his theology to fill him with fear and with anxiety over what is going to happen to him when he dies and leaves this world. And nobody pursues salvation until that kind of fear begins to rise in their heart. Well, next in John 3, verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night. Now, many things have been written about the fact that he came by night. There have been many spiritual explanations that have been given. But in reality, all that this means is that he didn't come in the daylight. Okay, don't stretch things in the Bible farther than they need to go. He came at night instead of in the day. The Bible doesn't tell us why he came at night. So you don't need to insert a metaphor about the darkness of his soul and that's why he came at night. More than likely, as a ruler of the Jews, he was afraid of the implication of associating openly in conversation with Jesus. More than likely, the Bible doesn't tell us that but that's my best guess. And now, as we saw in Matthew 23, Jesus just blistered the Pharisee. But I want you to notice, here at the start of his ministry comes this Pharisee. What does Jesus do? He opens his arms to this Pharisee that has come to him. And the conversation is actually initiated by Nicodemus. Look next in verse 2. Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher. Notice he says, we. So he goes beyond himself to include others who believe that Jesus has come from God as a teacher. And why do they believe that? Well, look next in verse 2. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, that's a great confession, right? And I want you to also notice that he calls him rabbi. He was also called a rabbi. It was a term of great respect, teacher, an honorable term. And here, 
he turns and he gives this term to Jesus, which means he sees Jesus at least as his equal. And he is the teacher, don't forget, in Israel. But he comes to Jesus and his attitude is, you're one up on me, Jesus, because you're doing miracles that men can't do. There wasn't no Benny Hinn miracles by Jesus. Okay? Jesus' miracles was real. Remember, miracles were, were not a part of life in Israel in those days. That whole generation of people had never even seen not one miracle. There hadn't been a prophet for 400 years in the land of Israel. So generations before them had never seen a miracle, but now, all of a sudden, this Jesus of Lazarus, Joseph's boy, carpenter's son, what? He's walking around doing miracles all over the place in just a matter of few weeks since the time we were there with him with John the Baptist. Nobody can do what you do unless the power of God is we believe that you have come from God as a teacher. Maybe like Moses. He came with affirming miracles. Maybe like Elijah. Maybe like Isaiah. Maybe you are the Messiah. But Nicodemus is like the first five disciples that we studied in chapter one, remember? They needed more information. They were originally from Missouri. You got, you got to show me. They sat down with Jesus and they asked him all kind of questions. And then they believed. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. Here is a man who is a member of the most hostile, the most aggressive, the most angry, the most hateful enemies that Jesus ever had on earth. And he, this man is saying, you are a teacher sent from God doing miracles. Now, realize what this is. This is objective, first person, plural, because he says, we know that you have come from God. First person, plural, eyewitness testimony to the authenticity of the miracles of Jesus. And that's part of the reason why John includes this in the text. This isn't the testimony of Jesus' disciples. This isn't the testimony of his followers. This is the testimony of a man who comes from the group of Jesus' fiercest enemies. And he's saying, you're on a divine mission that has been empowered by God himself. So this is not just polite. This is not just curious. This is not just cordial. This is not just hopeful. I'm here to tell you, this is an amazing firsthand profession and affirmation of the miracle power of Jesus as a teacher sent from God by a Pharisee. This man took his religion very seriously. He had taken it to its highest level. He was as fastidious as he could be. He was swallowing the vinegar on the Sabbath when he had a sore throat. He wasn't gargling it. 
But his heart, his heart was full of fear. And he wanted more information about this incredible individual, Jesus, that he had been witnessing doing these amazing miracles. So he comes as a worried sinner. And that brings us to our next point, number two, the Savior's way. How is Jesus going to respond to Nicodemus? Verse three. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What kind of response is that? How about, well, Nicodemus, I'm very happy to know that you believe that I've come from God and that I'm a teacher from God. That is great. That ain't what happened. Jesus, notice, totally ignores what Nicodemus said. And the point that needs to be made here is that what Nicodemus said wasn't important to Jesus. It's what Nicodemus was thinking is what was important to Jesus. Remember, we learned back in chapter 2 and we read it, Jesus knew all men and he knew what was in man and he knew what Nicodemus was thinking. He knew this sinner's worry. He knew what was going on with Nicodemus. Now he was afraid of what was going to happen when he died. He was afraid that he was going to miss the kingdom. He knew that his relationship with God wasn't right. He knew that he wasn't in the kingdom. And so Jesus just totally ignores what's on his lips and goes right into what is in his heart and reads Nicodemus like a book on the inside. And he tells Nicodemus again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was the issue. Now, real quick. We understand the kingdom of God in three general ways. Number one, the universal kingdom of God, and that is the reality that the Lord reigns over all of the universe and over all of creation, over the unseen world and the seen world. Right now, Jesus is Lord over everything. Secondly, there is the eschatological kingdom. Big $5 word simply means the end times, a study of the end times. And I say it that way, depending on your eschatology, either the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ that the premillennials believe that ends with the eternal state or new heaven and uh, earth in the eternal state itself that begins right at the second coming. That's the amillennials. That's a whole other conversation, and we're not going to get into that today. Be glad to talk with you about that after church. Then there's a third aspect of the kingdom of what we could call the mediatorial kingdom. That is the kingdom of salvation, the kingdom of redemption that God mediates on earth as he uses human means to bring people to salvation. What I'm talking about, this is the special realm of the redeemed. This is the realm of salvation. This is those who have been saved from judgment, Jew and Gentile, 
who have been reconciled to God forever through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Those who are, who are headed for resurrection, those who are headed to eternal life. There's that aspect of the kingdom on the earth. Jesus says, you're not going to be in that kingdom, Nicodemus, unless you're born again. Nicodemus was trusting in his religion to get him to heaven. But again, he knew in his heart his religion wasn't getting it done. But then Jesus gives him the Savior's way. And he starts by saying, truly, truly. Now we're going to see that 25 times in the Gospel of John. And when Jesus says that, he's usually correcting a falsehood. And the falsehood here is the religion of Judaism. I'm telling you the truth right now, Nicodemus, truly, truly, very emphatic, very strong. The current Jewish idea that all Jews are going to be in the resurrection of life and are a part of the kingdom just because they are Jewish, ethnically Jewish, is false. That idea is false. Let that falsehood go. Here is the truth, Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, not only are they not in the kingdom of God, they can't even see the kingdom of God. They can't participate in it in any way, shape, or form. Now, what's the bottom line? It's this. Religion in any form, to any degree, in and of itself is completely useless in getting anybody to heaven when they die. Religion is totally ineffective even at its absolute highest levels of devotion. The words of Jesus here that you must be born again are simply saying there's nothing for you to add because nothing you've done matters. Okay? Now listen, carefully. Carefully. You have to be balanced here. Things that you do by way of your works in this life to glorify God, that's a different conversation. That belongs in a different context. To say it one way, I think John Piper said it, your good works and clean moral living are done not in order to get you right with God, but because of the fact that you have been made right with God by God. Okay, you understand the balance there? To begin with, you got to go back and start all over again. You have to wipe out who you are naturally and be replaced by a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. So the words of Jesus here shatter once and for all every supposed excellence of every other religion's devotion in the history of this world. And if you don't like that, you ain't mad with me. You mad with God. You mad with the Bible. All moral behavior, all ceremony, all ritual, all devotion outside of being born again adds up to absolute zero. All the merits of any kind of human goodness outside of being born again adds up to zero. That's Jesus' view of religion, apart from being born again. What Jesus is saying here is absolutely shocking. Especially in our culture, 
especially in our day, for me to stand up here and say every religion is useless and all of them are wrong and you're really no better off than a pagan atheist because every single religion in the history of the world that has ever been or is now, apart from being born again in Christ, counts for nothing. Let me tell you, that idea is radically insane to most of our fellow citizens in America today that has secularized so much. They call me that crazy preacher on Hooper Road when you hear me say this or go out on the internet and see me on Facebook. That's okay. I'll be a fool for Jesus till I'm dead. But Jesus can't be any clearer in this text. The Savior's way is you must be born again. Now, we know and understand this term, born again. Let me tell you something about the Greek word for again. It actually means from above. It can be translated born again, but it could also be translated born from above. Both are correct. In order to be right with a holy God, you need to have another birth. A birth from above. You have to be created all over again to enter into the kingdom from above, which means you make no contribution to it. And that, again, I can't help but say this over and over, that's why the analogy of birth is used here by Jesus. That's the whole reason why he uses it. You didn't make, again, any contribution to your birth physically. You make no contribution to your birth Spiritually. Salvation is of the Lord, the Bible says. You have to be born from above. Not by something done here, but something done from above. Doesn't matter whether you're a priest or a religious leader or an atheist who hates religion. Doesn't matter. You're all in the same boat. Now look, starting with me, we all hate to see the rise of secularism in the United States of America. We hate to see it. I've told you before, shocking number. 80% of the population of Central goes to church nowhere. No church. And we got a bunch of churches, okay? But we should be no more upset, upset about that. We should be more upset about the rise of false religion in any form. Because apart from being born from above, we're all in the same boat. Doesn't matter. Pagan, atheist, false religion. Remember back to John 1.13. Look at it with me. John makes it so clear. Who were born, not of blood, meaning spiritual birth is not something that you inherit nor of the will of the flesh, meaning it isn't something you get because you work hard enough for it or you try to earn it. Look next. Nor of the will of man, meaning not by some humanly devised religious scheme, but what does it say next? But of God. This is a birth of God. You must be born from above. 
Divine regeneration is a divine miracle that happens from heaven. It's the same power that brought Lazarus out of the tomb when he was graveyard dead and the flies were buzzing around his head. Jesus destroys the sinner's safety in any form of religion apart from his way. How you get right with God. Now listen, Jesus had great respect for the law of God. I mean, for heaven's sakes, he's the author of the law of God. He fulfilled the law perfectly every day that he was on this earth, but he knew that the law can't save anybody. No, one why we know that is because God has a standard for entering heaven. The Bible makes it very clear. Lifelong, perfect obedience to the law of God. Has anybody in here accomplished that? Even if you accomplished it, have never accomplished it, but now you started today and for the rest of your life, you're sinlessly perfect. You can't make up for what you did in the past, right? God's standard is perfection to the law. You can't get there from here. That's why you need Jesus perfectly obeying the law all his life as our substitute and have his righteousness put on your account by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This man, Nicodemus, had one great need and it's the same need that every person has. He didn't need more laws. He didn't need more rules. He didn't need more rituals. He didn't need more sacrifices. He didn't need more candles. He needed to become a new creation. And only God, folks, only God can make someone a new creation. And that is every sinner's need. Now, if you come back next time, we'll talk about Nick Demas's response and we'll go deeper into the explanation of what it means to be born again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, this amazing, amazing text. Oh God, I pray that you use a sinner like me to explain this from your word. It's so critical for us to understand this. I pray I've done it in such a way And it's really not me, it's just you using me to explain this text. And we have further to go. So I pray that that those who have ears to hear, hear what the Word of God has said today. If any here have not bowed the knee to Jesus in saving faith, Lord, I, I just pray you draw them to yourself and bring another into our family, our family of God adopted by grace. And we give you all the praise and the glory for your day to day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.